You're going to love this. Just love it. Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania, on 92.9 FM WLRI Lancaster. In Hawaii, on 88.5 FM KAKUB, Voice of Maui. In Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, on WPRR Public Reality Radio. In New Orleans, on 102.3 WHIV. In Washington, D.C., on 105.5 FM. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Internet's on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Brad Friedman is taking a bit of New Year's downtime, and good on him for that. I'm Angie Quero, holding down the chair and the mic today. How predictable, how stupidly predictable that the toddler-in-chief is again pushing the idea that because it's cold out, global warming isn't real. Stop me if you've heard that one. Trump has seized on the Arctic temperatures in the northern U.S. and Canada to tweet out some snide sade at those silly scientists with their silly facts. This, along these lines, is yet another piece in the same old puzzle. Is he really that much of an idiot that he believes this stuff? Or... Now, here's my particular take. Is he happily indifferent to facts as long as he can play to the applause of his diminishing but still rabid supporters? Ultimately, it doesn't matter. Once upon a time, it seemed that understanding his motivation might help to reach him with tiny shots of reality. But by now, as those constant stories leaking out of the West Wing keep telling us, you can't reach him. You can only work around him while hoping he doesn't blow anything up all of which undoubtedly plays into the latest polls on Trump's plummeting approval ratings. 538.com shows he is less popular at this point in his presidency than any president since at least they used at least Harry Truman. And that, in turn, will not be helped by the latest twist on the GOP tax plan. Property tax deductions will be reduced under the new policy, which takes effect after the turn of the year. So, Homeowners across the country are racing to prepay their 2018 taxes before that. Not so fast, says the IRS. If your state hasn't assessed you for 2018 yet, you don't get to do that. You have to wait until your taxes are assessed, and that will be after the turn of the year. And that puts your payment in 2018, and there goes that full deduction. Now, I wonder if that will be followed by yet another story on how Trump supporters are still behind him, even as their wallets get drained. It's kind of ironic these same Trump supporters start throwing around words like socialism when anyone suggests that we're doing economics wrong here. I really believe if you ask most of those folks to define socialism, you hand them an old-fashioned pencil and paper and say, write down the definition of socialism, distinguish it from communism or fascism for that matter, they'd be completely stymied. Especially if you ask them, what's wrong with socialism anyway? or it's hybrid democratic socialism. What's wrong with that? Again, and I've tried this, a lot of them can't tell you. I talked with longtime activist George Lakey recently. His book, Viking Economics, explores the Nordic countries that have prioritized education for all, jobs for all, health care for all. And he makes a pretty convincing case that some of those same principles really can be accomplished here despite the difference in scale. And no, George Lakey says, that does not mean that people get lazy and they hang out waiting for their government checks. 
you talk about the entrepreneurs, and mm -hmm. here in America, there's this iconic vision of what you can be as an entrepreneur. You could start the next Amazon, you could start the next Google, and you would get all the accompanying wealth that mm -hmm. goes. Mm -hmm. This is off the top of my head, but I think I heard that Jeff Bezos, at last count, is worth personally $12 billion. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me from Viking economics that whereas it's all very lovely to be worth $12 billion personally, that's not the priority of the average Scandinavian. Their attitude toward entrepreneurship is that it's, an, it's a creative act. It's like a sculptor or an artist or somebody who loves to write Broadway musicals, something like that. It's a manifestation. It's, it's a putting together of stuff that most of us are not talented to do, but entrepreneurs happen to be talented to do. So from their, the Nordic point of view, the entrepreneurs deserve support to be able to make their dream come true. You know, maybe they start in the garage, but they need more support. They get the support. They need uh, more, more higher education. Let's say, you know, they need more engineering understanding in order to do more technology or more scientific understanding in order to do biological kinds of entrepreneurship or maybe some other kind they want to do. Um, all that's free and available to them, right? So the idea is support our entrepreneurs. They are the heart of innovation for an economy. And entrepreneurs are, creatives, that is to say, their satisfaction comes not from 12 billion waiting at the end of the rainbow, their satisfaction comes like it does for a sculptor or like it does for a novelist. It comes from the act of creativity. And so it's fine if they make a lot of money, we will also tax it away like crazy. Uh, we won't, you know, we, we, there are billionaires in Scandinavia, but, uh, and, and, you know, well-off people. The point of, from their, uh, from their set, uh, their value scheme is that from those who have a lot, a lot should be expected. So great. If your creativity happens to result in lots of money, then we should tax lots of that to keep the entrepreneurs coming and to keep everybody going really well. So some of my favorite interviews in the book are with CEOs who are asked, well, how does it feel to be, you know, opening seven new branches, you know, which is going to bring in more income, which is going to mean you pay even more taxes. And they say the, the point is not, um, I mean, I don't do this. Uh, centrally about money. I'm happy to have some extra money, but what I'm centrally about is manifesting my talent. That's what I love to do. And this country is so stable and it's so rewarding to live here. I just love living here. And I don't have to worry about pensions, you know, because uh, and this is also from aspiring entrepreneurs. I don't have to worry about pensions because everybody has a pension in this country. I don't have to worry about health care because everybody has terrific health care. I don't have to worry about my kids going to university because it's free. So I'm, I'm really supported in this country to do what I love to do. As we discuss specifics of the economic system, in terms of landmass and in terms of population, we're talking about something that truly is not analogous to America. The first objection I think a lot of people would say is, unless you take this very detailed study into how much of this can scale up to something like the United States, how useful is it to look at this and say, this is a potential model for us? That is such a great question. And it was very much on my mind as a researcher because at, you know, based at Swarthmore College, which supported the book, I was going back and forth interviewing leading economists and so on. And one of, the, one of the stories I could tell you that really helps to illuminate this question, I was entering a, a research institute in Oslo, the capital of Norway. And as I was entering it, I noticed on the wall a set of photographs. I looked at the photographs. One of them showed Chinese people, it looked like, looking at the camera, right? So I turned to the researcher leading me into the room, and I said, no, oh, those, those folks look Chinese. And he said, yeah, that's right. They were from Beijing. The People's Republic of China sent them. They were a bunch of economists and policymakers. And they sent them here to Norway to learn what they could for China. My jaw dropped open. We're because, talking big and populous. <laughs> we're talking <laughs> scale, right? I mean, from a Chinese point of view, the U.S. is a small country. So, uh, so the, the researchers saw my jaw drop open and he smiled and he said, we thought exactly what you thought. So we took them into the conference room, we sat them down and we said, why are you here? <laughs> and they said, well, we, we understand what you're, what you're wondering about. And we expected that. The thing is, we as economists know that an economy is an enormously complicated thing. It's a web of processes and structures, and we go, we're very empirical. So we're interested in what 
you've done that has been successful that might scale up. Now, maybe some of the things that you've done that have been successful will scale up for us, maybe to a province level or maybe to a whole country. Maybe other things won't. We'll make that judgment. But we, first of all, look at you as a laboratory. Oh, that rang a bell for me, right? As a laboratory for trying things out and what works, then we see if we can scale them up. And that just opened the door for me because I immediately thought about Social Security in the United States, mm -hmm. which, right, works great in Iceland, 320,000 people, and it works great in the United States. We wouldn't want to be without Social Security. I mean, the Icelandic version is not as stingy as ours, right? We're, we're stingy with it, and they're very abundant with it, but it's still the same system, mm -hmm. and it works across the, this huge country of ours. So, uh, and Medicare, Medicare gets higher ratings from people who are on it than private health care plans do. Right. Right? And that's a national program. And the more I thought about national programs uh, that are successful in this country, the more I realized, hey, scale sometimes is not a problem. The Chinese are right. So, okay, mark me down as a Chinese economist. <laughs> Well, let's take that at the time when Scandinavia had poor people and a brain drain people trying to go elsewhere because it was so bad to live. What were the first steps economically that they decided were to prioritize to get to where they are now? Well, first they had understood that they needed an alternative vision of an economy because if they stayed with the old view of what an economy is like, then they would still get caught, even if they try to do this or that or the other thing. So they reconceptualized what makes an economy work. And they started by looking at what is the source of wealth. They realized the major source of wealth is actually the worker. That the worker pr being more productive and more innovative is what makes an economy grow. If you if you really are very bad to workers, you know, if you overwork them, stress them so they can't be innovative anymore, can't even be productive. If, if you can hurt workers in such a way that they just are slogging through, right? Mm -hmm. And not even wanting to go to work. Well, but on the other hand, what if you treated workers well? What if you assumed that workers are actually wanting to work under the right conditions with a job that's designed well, for example, mm -hmm. where they could get that sense of satisfaction from a job well done? in, let's say, a society that gives them the training and education so they can really do that job with zest. You know, oh, well, you know, bring me another problem. I'll solve that by noon. You know, that kind of thing. And also an economy that's so abundant with jobs that if you get worn out, if you get burned out from your job, let's say you're in your 40s and you say, oh, I've been doing this so long, that, I mean, over there, the idea is quit. Get another job. There are plenty of jobs. Try something else. Try something that might be closer to your new, the, maybe the new passion you, you developed. Or maybe, maybe there was always that teenager around, you know, inside you that really wanted to become a lawyer, but you never, you know, you got into this and that. And well, go to law school. It's free. It does sound like Nirvana. <laughs> but you know, I can see where, here's one of the places where I can see where that may not transfer well, is that here in America, we have a vast, vast population. And if as, as a social structure and an economic structure, you want to treat the workers as dispensable and replaceable, and if this one doesn't want to keep his job or doesn't want to perform well, there are 14 more lined up who want to take that job, there's less impetus to say, this is a valued commodity, this single worker is a commodity that we need to treasure and work with mm -hmm. because they're not. There's less incentive for the economic elite that benefits from these, all these workers lined up looking for a job, right? But what if your, society, your economy is not run by the economic elite and by what their incentives are, but instead, what if it's run by the people as a whole? In other words, what if it's a democratic kind of led, led economy rather than an oligarchic led economy. Well, if you've got a democracy, then you can say, let's have full employment. Let's not have those 14 jobless people waiting to get in. And let's invest in workers so that they can become more productive and our economy can grow. And that's what's really paid off for them. So that their workers are actually more productive than ours and their economy outperforms ours. And it's not just a new thing. They've been, the uh, Swedes and uh, the others have been outperforming the American economy and the British economy, which operates pretty much by this American rules. Um, they've been outperforming for 60 years. 
Yeah. So from a sheer economic production point of view, productivity point of view, the way to go is the Nordic model. They've really shown us up in international ratings. Who is unemployed in Scandinavia? People in transition. For example, especially recent migrants who are learning language. So, for example, in Norway, they make a contract with each person who comes in from the outside. One in five Norwegians is now foreign-born. Having accepted so many immigrants, then there needs to be this startup time for the immigrants, right? Because you land there, you don't even know this weird language. Nobody teaches Norwegian language outside Norway. So what do you do? So the government's uh, approach to migration, which has been working very well, has been to sit down with the worker and say, uh, okay, so uh, we are on your side. We want you to be able to be part of this country, but uh, we're offering you a contract. We will pay you a living wage for one year. In return, you need to work on your Norwegian steadily. And if you miss a Norwegian lesson, we'll dock your pay. You need to work on culture lessons because you need to learn Norwegian culture. You don't have to buy our values, but you have to understand why we're so weird. So you have to, <laughs> so you have to learn our culture. You also need to be willing to get job skills that will make you employable in our country because maybe you're amazing, you know, in uh, Tanzania or wherever you're from, but that just because you're good at that job that they have doesn't mean you're going to be good at a job here unless you get the skills. And then finally... You have to be willing to live where we put you. So for one year, while we're paying your wages, we will find a place for you. It may be, um, now the person who told me this was very, very dark-skinned. He's from Burundi, African guy. Uh, he told me the story. I made friends with him. I'm still in touch with him. Uh, he said that the guy said to him, this may be the loneliest year of your life. Because you may be in some fishing village on the West Coast, you know, nobody your color, anywhere near, nobody who speaks your language, there you will be. But that's the deal. You either take it or leave it. If you leave it, then you have to find another country where you can get a better deal. So various self-respecting kind of negotiation, right? In the case of my friend Michael, he said, yeah, I want to take this deal. Sounds all right. So I said to Michael, how was it? He said, it was the loneliest year of my life. <laughs> and it was very, very tough. But he said, you know, uh, as I got to know Norwegians better, I began, like I assumed they were all racist, right? They wouldn't talk to me. They wouldn't talk to me. So I figured, well, it's because of the color of my skin. And then I realized after a few months being there and watching them carefully, they don't talk to each other either. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to learn the culture. <laughs> and in Africa, we talk to each other all the time. <laughs> so as he began to catch on, you know, he began to realize, oh, I can, I can make this work. And by the end of the year, he was very successful in all counts. He went back to Oslo, of course, so he'd be near more people he knew. And so I said, what's going on now? He said, oh, my gosh. I fell in love with a, a Norwegian young lady, actually, a, a ethnic Norwegian. And uh, we have a baby, and we're real excited about that. And we found a church that we like in, in here in Oslo. So we've settled down here. And I'm the, I'm the drummer in the church band. And we have a great time, and I'm, I'm so grateful that I've had this real chance to live in Norway. That's George Lakey. I cannot recommend his book enough, Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too. On the flip side, coming up, really bad news for Eric Garner's family in New York. Then later, looking at your holiday gifts in a whole new light, Jessica Bruder with her tales of the American nomads who live in cars and trailers and work overnight to get those gifties from Amazon and other warehouses to where they landed under your tree in time. I'm Angie Cuero. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. We really need your support now more than ever. Progressive media outlets have been under attack for years, even during supposedly progressive administrations. And real alternatives to the mainstream corporate media you know, the folks who got it all wrong from the jump must be able to continue the fight for all of us. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com donate to help out however you can. A monthly pledge is greatly appreciated, but anything you can share will keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And... 
please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. That song is I Can't Breathe. It's by the brother and sister of Eric Garner, whose daughter Erica, at the time I'm recording this, is in a coma with reported brain damage. Eric Garner is the New York man who was, in essence, sentenced to death for selling loose cigarettes. He was held down by police, even as he said, I can't breathe, a reported 11 times, and then died. Now his daughter has had a heart attack, and it was apparently brought on by an asthma attack. And that is bad luck of the draw, asthma. It's an unfortunate thing to be born with. Well, it is, but if you're born a black child in America, you are more than two times more likely to have asthma. The reasons are nothing you haven't heard. Minorities live in more polluted areas. They're closer to freeways and industrial zones. Their access to health care and good nutritious food are more likely to be limited. The CDC says African-American children and adults are more likely to be exposed to secondhand smoke than any other racial or ethnic group, despite less smoking overall by African-American citizens. In short, the death toll of racism in America has so many faces. Now, we've had a year under a racist and racism-complicit president. He has goaded and encouraged America's racists and homegrown Nazis to march through our streets with torches and cries of blood and soil. Even before that, as in the case of Eric Garner, we've seen one instance after another of officer-involved minority deaths that get flushed out of the judicial system with no consequences. Okay, please listen to this. It is absolutely critical for me to add Some deaths at the hands of police are legitimate instances of self-defense or of righteous police work, keeping the larger public safe from a dangerous individual. That is their job. And those instances cannot be lost in this conversation. But we can't fool ourselves that instance after instance of minority injuries and deaths at the hands of police are clean and just. We just can't. The numbers, and in many cases, the cold, hard video evidence, make a lie of that. Body cameras on police, mandated by policy or by law. Now, those are a big part of the issue. But sometimes, for whatever reason, they're not turned on when they're supposed to be. And that has shown up in yet another case. Hospital photos of 17-year-old Ulysses Wilkerson of Troy, Alabama, are making the rounds on the Internet. He is bloodied and beaten with what his dad says is a cracked eye socket with swelling of both his face and his brain. Now, what happened is, of course, in dispute. His parents say Ulysses was assaulted while handcuffed, beaten in the face and head. Police, and this comes through official filters, so it's second or third hand, say that he wasn't handcuffed at the time. He had reached for his waistband for what they were afraid could be a weapon. It's even, at the moment I speak these words, it's even a dispute whether charges against Wilkerson were dropped right away. Now, CNN made repeated efforts to find out, and they kept hitting a wall. So here we go again. The county DA says one of the officers involved did not have a body camera turned on. One of them apparently did. Now, I hope the why of the first and the content of the second go public and soon. A while back, I had a conversation with activist, educator, and author James Foreman Jr. In fact, our talk was just days after a right-wing terrorist in Charlottesville plowed his car into anti-Nazi protesters and killed one of them. And in that way, he talked about how all of these events are touch points for critical conversations that we cannot let die. I feel like this happens where there's a set of conversations that's ongoing that never goes away, but there are these moments where it gets triggered and then all of a sudden we're talking about it intensely, right? Like police beating and, and shooting of, of black citizens, that, that 
didn't start you know, a year or two ago when the video started, that's been going, but we have this moment where we talk about it. So I guess I feel like what our obligation is as a community is to figure out a way to keep the conversation going, to not stop talking about it as soon as the next outrageous thing happens. And that's even more important now because the one thing we know about this president and this administration is something probably while I'm saying this, if y'all hadn't silenced your phones, you'd be getting news alerts about the next outrage. I mean, we have to laugh, but it is so tragic. Foreman's book, Locking Up Our Own Crime and Punishment in Black America, is definitely worth your time. And it goes into a topic that isn't often examined, how the high incarceration rates of black Americans can be traced to legislation endorsed and voted for by black Americans. Another critical point he makes is how the people who meant so well doing this, making these laws, could not possibly have anticipated what they would mean decades later, when a lifetime record at the push of a button could mean having a normal life or benefits or the right to vote would be all but impossible for someone with a record. So here's that part of our conversation. The first chapter of the book is about marijuana decriminalization, which was an issue that was put on the table in Washington, D.C. in 1975. So you have the first majority black locally elected city council coming into office, and they have the power to decide whether marijuana should remain criminal criminal or not. And a guy named Dave Clark, city council member, white guy, one of the two whites on the 13-member council, proposes this decriminalization. The opposition to marijuana decriminalization comes from two sources principally. The first are African-American ministers, black church, which was very powerful at the time in local and city politics, more powerful than it is today as an institution. And the second was a black nationalist city council member who was also a pastor by the name of Doug Moore. Now, what's fascinating about their, the history is you said up front, you said, you know, these people aren't, you know, I, I don't remember the phrase you use, race traders or mm-hmm. self-loathing. You, self, self-loathing, right. Like Doug Moore was elected as a representative of the poor African-American members in Washington, in uh, community in D.C. He ran as a man of the people. He was endorsed by the, there was a union of prisoners. They endorsed two candidates in the race, Marion Barry and Doug Moore. But, but here's the thing. They saw the damage that heroin had done in black communities in the 1960s. And they were afraid that marijuana would serve as a gateway drug to heroin. This was just a few years later. And this was a real threat. Jackie Robinson the baseball great, he went around to black churches and community centers across America in the early 70s as marijuana decriminalization was first starting to be discussed. And he came to D.C. And he said, listen, I know y'all are talking about decriminalization, but let me explain to you that my son, Jackie Jr., is a heroin addict. And he got started with marijuana. That was his first drug that he used. So it's We know more now. There's more scientific evidence now than was available at the time. But this idea of marijuana as a gateway drug to heroin was very, very real. And there was another consideration. It wasn't just that they were worried about marijuana as a gateway drug. It was also, and understand this, they got in a deep way the way racism infected every aspect of American society. But for them, that was a reason not to decriminalize marijuana because they said those white kids in the suburbs, yeah, they can go, they can get high and they'll recover. Their parents have assets. They can find a drug treatment program if they need to. They're not going to get busted with weed in their locker by the principal of the school because their parents run the school board. But our kids... They, we can't afford to have our kids using that drug because we have to be twice as good. We have less margin for error because of racism. So they were super clear-eyed about the role that racism plays in America, but it didn't lead to the conclusion that we might think it would have today. 
And the last thing to understand is how they underestimated the force of later events, right? So when they vote not to decriminalize marijuana, they don't know that five years later, Congress is going to pass legislation making it so that if you have a drug conviction, you can't get student loans and you can't get access to public housing. And they, they don't know about the technological revolution that's going to mean that today we can, with the push of a button, pull up your prior record from back into the 70s. A guy just wrote me a letter saying, wrote me an email saying, I just applied for benefits in South Dakota or North South Dakota, I think it was. And they tell me that I have a marijuana conviction from Washington, D.C. in 1972. And I, I heard you on the radio talking about D.C. history. And I'm wondering if you can help me. Think about that. Today it came up in a record check. So that's part of the point about the unintended consequences is that they don't realize at the time they're making this decision, they can't realize all these subsequent events that are going to make the decision to criminalize marijuana so damaging to the black community over time. Part of this story is about the limited options and the constraints that the people that I'm writing about were under the limited options that they had. When I say they went to Congress and they asked for all these other things, this was a majority white Congress that was not giving it to them. And the reason why the pain of the black community was not felt by that Congress is racism and our historic indifference to black suffering. Mm -hmm. That comes out very clearly in the book. The other thing is, let's talk about slavery for a second. The backdrop to everything that we're talking about in America right now, the last few days, and also in this book, is the history of slavery in this country. We had slavery in this country for longer than we have not. So just stop and think about that for a minute, because that's not how it gets presented. That's not how it gets taught in school. It's like one unit. If it's going to be a unit, the unit should be 60% of the unit. It's That's the percentage of our history. And that's not even adding Jim Crow. That's just slavery straight up, 1619 to 1865. You add in Jim Crow and the years that we had slavery or Jim Crow in this country by a factor of four greater than years we have not. But it's not just that. We have to pause for a minute and think about what lies a society has to tell itself to justify something as brutal as a system where you buy, breed, beat, and rape people systematically because of the color of their skin. Our natural human instinct is to think that we're good people, right? That's what the psychologist will tell us. So if you're going to do that to another group of people, you have to start to create a set of lies in a society to justify that. If you look at the myths that we hold today that have been proven by the implicit association tests, they're myths that are rooted in things that we had to tell ourselves to justify slavery as a system. Black people are criminal. Black people are lazy. Black people don't feel pain in the same way. That's why this beating isn't immoral. Black people don't care about their children. That's why when you rip a child away from her mother at an auction block, you don't think twice because black people don't, black people don't care about their children in the same way. Those myths got created over 300 years. They became part of what we believe as a society. They became part of our identity, part of our narrative embedded in our, list, in our history, represented in our monuments, on our state flags. And it doesn't go away in... Those beliefs don't, we don't get rid of them in 30 or 40 or 50 years, especially when we do no reckoning as a society. The reason why you can't read this book and think, you know, black people did it too, so therefore it's not racist, is that once you have this understanding of this history and you understand how it infected black people too. African Americans are Americans and some of these same understandings and beliefs and ideologies, we're not free of them. I think what bothered me so much in the immediate wake of what happened in Charlottesville was the chant that came up to make us feel better, this is not us. 
this is not America. We have to stand up and say, this is not what our America is. And I thought of people who get a cancer diagnosis and you're not going to get rid of cancer by sitting in the corner going, I don't have cancer. I don't have cancer. I don't have cancer. Yes, you have cancer. Yes, that is us. I wondered how that hashtag and how that theme played out to you in those days. Same thing. The chant should be, we are struggling mightily to make this not be us. Now, that doesn't chant so well. It doesn't chant. No, I know. It doesn't chant too well. I'm not, that's why I'm here at Kepler's Books, not leading the chants. But no, but that's really the, 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 the chant is, this has been us. A lot of people have fought to have it not be us. The fight is still raging to have it not be us. Right? That's the chant. But the chant can't be, this is not us, because this also, because this has been us. There are these moments when you want to, you want to believe in your country, right? We all want to believe in the best, that the, the pieces of our country that are the best of us, right? And this is what, this is always why black patriotism has been so powerful. And the reason why I believe that we are the most patriotic Americans is that we fight and argue and demand, and Obama has talked about this, right? He talked about this in Selma. We continue to fight to make America be its greatest self, even as against all the evidence that suggests it will never be. And we keep fighting. We keep believing. We do not give up. That's one of the things I love about being black is having that history, like having that tradition to draw upon. Like when King stood in, in 63 in the March on Washington, he knew that he was appealing to an American history that was partially myth, but also that there was an element of truth to that and that if he could pick up on the part that was true and persuade America to be that, that it never actually has been that he would have achieved his greatest dream. That really was his greatest dream. That's James Foreman Jr. He discussed his book, Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America, with me for my own show, In Deep with Angie Cuero. You can find that hour-long conversation at indeepradio.com. Up next, ho, 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 another gift-giving extravaganza behind us. Amazon, for one, reports massive sales, even better than expected. And what you may not know, is how many of the elves working at Amazon, Walmart, and other warehouse stores are living in cars, trucks, and RVs. And they're welcomed and accommodated by those companies in a self-perpetuating loop of class division. That is next on the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Ho, 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 ho. We are it's the broadcast. I'm Angie Claro. In for Brad and Desi. One last gasp of real life before inaugurating Bradcast's 2018 nonstop extravaganza. At our house, we are not big givers of gifts. My sweetie and I are both over 50, so collectively, when you think about it, we have had more than a century to accumulate stuff. And we are more keen on purging stuff and gathering up stuff and giving away stuff and avoiding getting more stuff than we are on being given stuff. Hey, speaking of that, this year, introduce at least one person to that golden oldie, still wonderful story of stuff. The story of stuff is online. It's very easy to find. And boy, does it give you perspective on the price of a throwaway consumer society and how to avoid colluding with that. The story of stuff, it's animated, it's child-friendly, it's accessible to the very young, And, here's a bonus, the far right thinks it's a liberal socialist George Soros-funded plot. So, hey, it's got to be good and good for you. 
Anyway, back on track here. America on the whole really gets into the gift giving thing. And for online stores, that is an absolute bonanza. From U.S. News and World Report, quote, Amazon announced a record-setting holiday sales season that included 4 million new Amazon Prime memberships in a single week and a 70% increase in shopping on the Amazon app. From MasterCard Spending Plus, a report that holiday sales increased 4.9% this year, setting a new record for dollars spent. From the National Retail Federation, more than 174 million U.S. consumers shopped in stores and online between Thanksgiving and Cyber Monday. 81 million people shopping on Cyber Monday alone. And it's important to see the faces behind those numbers. Excellent books and articles over the years have been published on the toll working in warehouse fulfillment centers and superstores like Walmart can take. Here's a starting point. 2012, Mother Jones, Mac McClellan's I Was a Warehouse Wage Slave. That's a great place to start. This year, a new take on it came from Jessica Bruder. It turns out the one-two punch of the vanishing middle class and the rise of the cut-rate retailer has created a whole new subculture. People who used to have homes or who now can never possibly afford one, taking to the road, living in RVs or trucks or cars, and they're chasing from one seasonal job to the next. And it's kind of ironic. We've had all these years of trying to raise the living standards of itinerant farm workers, most of whom are non-white. And granted, we have seen a lot of progress there, yay. But here's this wry twist now. They're being joined by mostly white people in caravans of the partly employed. And Jessica Bruder traveled with those itinerants, and she discovered how seasonal employers, from Walmart to state and federal park operators, simultaneously cultivate and accommodate those travelers while all but guaranteeing that they will never climb out of near poverty. The New York Times named her book Nomadland one of the hundred notable books of 2017. Right now, the people that she wrote about, well, they're finishing up this year's post-holiday rush of returns and refunds from the warehouses, and then they will be on the road again, looking for the next chance to earn money, the next place to park where they won't be rousted, maybe a place they could access a shower, and hopefully enough money to buy some food. I talked to Jessica about Nomadland, surviving America in the 21st century. I had heard years and years ago that Walmart depending on the store, officially, unofficially, had started allocating room for trailers and overnighters in their parking lots. But I had no clue this was a subculture that was evolving. I thought they were people who like to travel. And some of them are. How did you get the idea that there was more than that? Yeah, well, it's funny. Uh, as a journalist, I do a heck of a lot of reading. Uh, and in recent years, I've been reading a lot about labor. So I don't know if you remember, back in 2001, there was a wild story that came out of this scrappy little newspaper called the Allentown Morning Call back east that reported that temperatures in an Amazon warehouse had hit, I believe it was 110 degrees. And rather than install air conditioning or opening the dock at the loading bay to bring some cool air in, they had ambulances parked out front ready to pick up people as they dropped. And that kind of blew my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that blew a lot of minds. A few, couple years later, I was reading a magazine story. It really got me peaked on warehouse labor um, and just that kind of economy that we're moving into, just these huge distribution centers and the work that goes on inside. And there was this story talking about it, and I think it was only two paragraphs where a woman briefly spoke with a reporter and said, yeah, I'm an RVer, and I can't afford to retire, and Amazon has a whole program for that. And I said, what? <laughs> so basically, you know, I grew up in the Northeast, so not an RV heavy culture. And whenever I saw one going by, I would think to myself, there go the last of the great pensioners. They're going to see Old Faithful. They're going <laughs> to see Niagara Falls. Like, and it still is happening to some degree, but blending in with this other group is this newly dispossessed group of folks who never really imagined doing that life or might have imagined doing it in the old school way, uh, back when a recreational vehicle always meant recreation, yeah. uh, rather than permanent home traveling from job to job. And when I scraped the surface with some basic Googles, I started realizing there are thousands of employers hiring from this population at 
you know, national forests and the campgrounds to do the maintenance, which is harder than it sounds. That's three times a day, toilet cleaning, shoveling fire pits, dealing with rowdy people. You're on site 24 hours a day, but you can't really invoice for that much. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some exploitation happening there for sure. Guarding the gates of oil fields in Texas, working at every tourist trap from Dollywood to Wall Drug. But it's amazing because in the mainstream workplace, there is so much ageism now. The woman who became the protagonist of the book had encountered it herself. She had a lot of really good construction skills. She'd been a general contractor, had worked as a Home Depot project manager, but as she aged, found that she could only get jobs working the register and never enough hours to support herself. Mm -hmm. So I think it was very surreal for her to go from a market where she's just clawing for every low-wage job she can get, not even getting enough hours, and those prospects are waning as she ages, to step it through this looking glass into this weird shadow economy where they want RVers and most of the RVers are at or nearing traditional retirement age and they want warm bodies now. Why is this a largely white phenomenon? It's largely white for a whole bunch of reasons. So for example, uh, when I finished reporting this book, the Tumpocalypse had yet to take hold. Uh, the creepy white supremacists who are now crawling, they were around, but they're all feeling empowered to crawl out of the woodwork. Yeah. They were still kind of in their hidey holes for the most part, but we were still in an era where there was horrible persecution of Latinos, particularly in border areas, and also where you had just about every week it was like an unarmed African-American in a car getting shot. And I started noticing it, like if you look at the photographs of Amazon's workers in Camper Force, Lily White. I was going all to these places, people are white. I was saying, huh, this is funny because there's some sort of like internal diversity going on. I met trans people. There's a guy who, you know, his ancestry is Macedonian and he's Muslim and parks his car to face Mecca using a special iPhone app for call to prayer. So you have some diversity, mm -hmm. but it was pretty white. So part of me was thinking, well, look, you're vulnerable enough. When you're a van dweller, you're always waiting for the knock by the police and you're vulnerable on the, enough on the road as a person of color. Mm -hmm. So just seeing that Venn diagram, I can't imagine being that, in that untenable spot in the middle. And there are some people who are there, just not that many. What about the different situations for women and men? Because a woman traveling alone is more vulnerable. Yeah, but by the same token, there are so many older single women doing it. That kind of blew my mind because, mm -hmm. I mean, perhaps it shouldn't have. Women have lower lifetime earnings than men because of both the gender wage gap and the fact that women typically do the bulk of unpaid labor like caregiving that takes them out of the workforce. That means they end up with less social security. And when I'm out there, the people I'm talking to are mostly from a generation where people could still have a one-income family, and yes. that would be enough to support it. And typically the breadwinner was the guy, and that was the culture. And women live longer. Mm -hmm. So I shouldn't have been shocked, but uh, Linda's not at all anomalous in being uh, a single woman on the road. She actually kind of ends up with this tribe of other single women. But yeah, it's happening. How many of them put their experience, either verbally or you got the sense, that they put their experience mentally in the larger frame of what was happening to society? Some people, uh, I wouldn't say most. I think a lot of people are really focused on the day-to-day. -day. Yeah. Another question people tend to ask me is, why aren't people out there, you know, burning things down or unionizing even at Amazon? I'm just like, this is a kind of difficult life. You know, even though it does have some freedoms and some joys, it's pretty hard. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are really focused on the day-to-day -day rather than putting it in a giant, you know, the arc of history. I kind of feel it, in, particularly in this era, mm -hmm. one of the great strengths of our species that has made it so darn adaptable and resilient is our ability to, to normalize our circumstances, right? But given the current political climate, I also worry that our ability to normalize things, that very trait that's made us so successful, could also rapidly become our undoing. Yeah. We can also see that the places that they work, they're, they're equipped to deal with m what might be the temptation for unions. Amazon, in their training and in their facilities, they're ready to acknowledge that the unions might in fact be organizing, and that showed up in your book. Yeah, I mean, Amazon now is required to have posters in their warehouses. I believe this was an NLRB ruling saying that people can unionize. I didn't see one when I was there, but the warehouse is many, many football fields in size, so who knows where it was living. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when I was there, a couple folks who I, gosh, I've been in touch with them for maybe three years now, uh, long-term sources who are out on the road. And they told me that there were union organizers in the parking lot 
And that during their meetings at what they call stand-up, mm -hmm. which happens, I believe it's twice a shift. Um, I remember the first stand-up where you're kind of doing your stretches and they're doing announcements. And they basically were telling people, you know, don't approach a union. It's almost like don't approach this feral animal. <laughs> <laughs> don't approach the union. If they approach you, back away. Uh, but basically saying, if you provide your information, they will track you. I mean, it was bizarre to hear that Amazon had been kind of making this Orwellian argument, basically saying, you know, if you give them your information, they will track you, they will follow you, you will stay in that database forever. Um, and we take great care of you, so why would you want to do that anyway? Mm -hmm. And frankly, for the population I was writing about, which is so transient anyway, unionizing just, you know, you're there and you're gone. So it doesn't make sense, but it seemed like it was definitely discouraged, even for folks who were living in traditional stick and brick houses in the area and commuting to work and might be there for quite a long time. And a lot of these jobs market themselves as essentially summer camp. The camp host jobs, they give out these pamphlets that it's like three gray-haired women arm in arm on a lake shore looking like best friends at summer camp. And it says, come get paid to go camping. I've never felt so well before. This is the best retirement ever. And then people realize they're there. They're shoveling out fire pits. They're doing a lot of toilet cleaning. They're dealing with rowdy people, lots of maintenance. I know people who have cracked ribs on that job. And I know people who have gotten repetitive stress injuries on the Amazon job. One guy who hit his head on the concrete floor. Yeah, it's not an easy life. If you put up signs that said, come wash latrines for very little money, they probably wouldn't Hey, but with a big <laughs> smiley face. With a big smiley face. There you go. You had a phrase that I really wanted to get out there, weaponized. Oh, gosh. I wish I had this phrase in the book, but it came to my mind afterwards. It is weaponized positive psychology. It, it was almost 1984-ish, some of the science, for example, oh, that were up yeah. around Amazon. Oh, yeah. There was one that said problems are treasures, and another one that said variation is the enemy. <laughs> Oh I'm serious. <laughs> I have pictures of them that I probably shouldn't have. Wow. And there were signs in the bathroom that showed you what color your urine should be? Yes. What was that about? Well, apparently it was about hydration. It did feel a little invasive. You were, you were basically, <laughs> it was a little invasive. <laughs> well, at least there wasn't somebody there having me pee in a cup. I just had to do that before I got the job at Amazon, and that's its own story. Um, but... Yeah, essentially it was a Pantone-looking chart with different color swatches, and you were encouraged to look in the bowl and look at the chart and determine whether you were adequately hydrated. The worst hydration level, it was this scary shade of puce, and I was thinking, oh my God, if anybody is urinating that color, they should probably get them out of here now. Call yeah. an ambulance. They don't want you to call an ambulance, though. They have in-house medical. It's called AmCare, and if they can take care of you on the floor, they actually have flyers. They, they don't want people calling out to med. They want to handle it all through their system. But to be fair, a lot of what I read in the book, and not just Amazon, in some of the other positions, there does seem to be genuine caretaking. There does seem to be, in some cases, steps that go beyond the bare minimum that you have to provide humanity. So it sounds like it wasn't all like, you know, corporations are bad and they're exploiting these people. No, I mean, I think the bottom line is uh, when people meet me, they expect me to be more militant about Amazon. Mm -hmm. And my attitude is, my problem is with monopoly capitalism, because the idea is, you know, when institutions are allowed to get so big that they rival our democratic institutions, you know, Amazon cloud space now hosts everything from NASA to the CIA. They're huge. And if you want to sell anything, you have to do it through them. And they'll, and there are instances of them actually knocking off products and using the sales data to kind of do what other people do better. Um, so it is kind of the Borg, but our government is allowing that to happen. Anti-monopoly legislation is completely toothless, and I think that's the real problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, it's opportunistic to find all those loopholes and exploit them, but I'm not shocked by it. Right. That's what you do. Yeah. That's yeah. what people do in this. It's, it's a winner-take-all economy. Mm -hmm. I, I do think some of the things that are about caring for people are also about covering one's butt when it comes to corporate stuff. So having Amcare there in the warehouse, a lot better than having your people have to go out to the hospital right away. Perhaps you would have to report more things to OSHA. I'm not sure if you didn't. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's some of that going on too. There was one woman who I remember hit her head really badly on something that probably should have been covered up. And, you know, it's not like she got paid time off or anything. But when somebody from HR came to say hello to her in her trailer, she was so grateful that it made me depressed as hell. I mean, basically oh, they didn't fire me, and they came to check in. And I said, honey, they're not paying you either. Mm -hmm. They want to make sure you're not going to sue them. Mm -hmm. 
so I think particularly for a stressed demographic, when there's ageism in the mainstream labor market, they really do kind of have these people over a barrel. Mm -hmm. You mentioned some cases in the book where complaints were filed mm -hmm. and inspectors did come in. None of the outcomes that I saw were particularly satisfying in really taking care of the workers. Did you see anything where you felt like government inspectors were working to keep the workers safe? Not particularly. I think OSHA is very underfunded. And in other cases, I was uh, actually shocked by what I considered to be pretty negligent. So uh, in the process of reporting the book, I heard many times from workers in these campgrounds that the work they did took longer than the hours they were allowed to file to get paid for. And because in so many cases, if you're doing that job, you're on site 24-7, and if somebody wants you to sell them firewood at 3 in the morning, they can just come and bang on your rig, and you are on the job. Uh, there were cases, first of all, anecdotally, tons of people told me that this was the case and that they'd experienced it directly. However, again, there's so much ageism in the mainstream workplace. So many of these people were so grateful to have a job they knew that complaining is a great way to get fired, particularly when you're an at-will employee and you can be terminated without cause on the spot. Maybe you've traveled across the country for this job. So I did reach out to the Forest Service, the National Forest Service, and I filed a Freedom of Information Act request just for one region because they kind of stymied me when I tried to do it nationally. They said, we have a billion different offices. And I said, okay, I just want a sample. So I did get back some letters that they had received complaining of things like what I've just told you about. And so I said, okay, well, when you get these, what do you do? And basically the Forest Service contracts with private concessionaires and the concessionaires do the hiring for campground maintenance and collect the fees and whatnot. So this is a, one of these much touted public-private partnerships. And they said, oh, well, we forward the complaints back to the concessionaires. And I said, is that, you know, I felt like I was having a kind of game show moment where I wanted to say, is that your final answer? <laughs> and I kind of went back and I said, I must explain to you how this sounds to me, because it sounds to me somewhat negligent. And it sounds like, well, you're just giving it back to the same people who aren't doing anything to begin with. And it's something that you've become aware of. So is that really a responsible way? This is public land. This is taxpayer. And... It's funny, I almost felt bad for the press guy on the phone. He said, look, I've done the research. I don't know what else to tell you. This is what we do. This wow. is the practice. This is protocol. So that's what they do. The sugar beet harvest. In almost every other case, I saw that what the company was doing was advantageous financially. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand that with the sugar beet harvest because, as you, I mean, for one thing, I didn't know there were beets the size of basketballs. Oh, man. Yeah, they were particularly big this year, apparently. So a lot of them might be more, what am I, what size would you say? It's, this is not quite a basketball. It's cross between a, a basketball and a softball. Yeah, somewhere like a really big grapefruit, maybe a pomelo. <sighs> That's amazing. Yeah, they get pretty big. Cantaloupe, yeah. big cantaloupe. But apparently it was just a huge year for these beets, and they were just bulbous and big, and everything smells like sugar rot, and they're coming in on multi-ton trucks. So you're there amid the diesel fumes and the cold, waving the trucks in, and then taking samples, which sounds really dainty, but then you realize you're holding a vinyl sack that's like a giant pillowcase under a chute that is like 15 feet up in the air that will basically take a scoop of beets out and dump them all down the chute. And you're essentially, it feels like you're catching frozen turkeys or bowling balls in, in like a, a pillowcase, which is really, I have a very minor old shoulder injury. It really brought it back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My body hurt like crazy. I was 37 at the time. I don't know how people who are much older do it. I saw them there doing it. The whole crew on my piler had quit within two days of when I left. It's very hard work. What, what I didn't understand was if, if everybody in your particular group quit after two days, you would think it would be advantageous to the company to do six-hour shifts and yeah. hire more people. Yeah. So why would they not do that? They just keep hiring people. And I think it's um, they know they're going to get attrition. They call the race to get the beets out of the ground and at the processing facilities. They call it a campaign. It is war. It's, it's pretty wild stuff. But it, I think they just keep... Hiring and hiring. And one of the weirdest things about this was the demographic that I saw there in the RV park was a mix between what I'll call pseudo-retirees, because a lot of these people still call themselves retirees. But in my mind, if you're on the concrete floor of an industrial agricultural setting for 12 hours a day shoveling beets, you're not really retired. That's Jessica Bruder, the author of Nomadland. 
Surviving America in the 21st Century. A full-length interview with her and one with James Foreman and one with George Lakey are all online at indeepradio.com. Conversations were originally recorded for Indie. I'm Angie Cora, hoping to be back with you soon. I wish you strength, progress, and continued hope as we trundle on into 2018 together. Brad Friedman and Desi Doyen will return for the next Bradcast. Until then, good luck, world. I can't stand this in-